John, an absolute tragic start to this broadcast today. <laughs> I couldn't find the buttons or anything. Uh, but this is the Daily Wrestling News Show, where we are here to teach, learn, and remember the history of professional wrestling with everyone that wants to join us. It is a special, our third special covering Tales from the Territories. I'm here with John DeCani. John, how are you? Good, good. Uh, beautiful morning so far here in Jersey. How are, how are things on the Treasure Coast? I think the high is only going to be 70 today, so it's going to be a little on the chilly side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get I get things like that from my parents who now live out in San Diego. It just makes me want to say, like, <laughs> oh, only 70. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so Tales from the Territory continued last night. We had episode number three, AWA. A uh, What's it called? Wrestling, wrestling from the Heartland. Yeah, body slams in the Heartland. Body slams in the Heartland. I wrote, I wrote it down, but didn't transcribe it. So, <laughs> um, the uh, the crew that they had assembled was Diamond Dallas Page, Medusa, Jim Brunzel, Greg Gagne, um, Ken Patera, and Ken Patera. Right. Um, this one was a little different. Uh, I had heard some of the stories, mm-hmm. so so that was not new. And some of it was, a lot of it actually, I don't even believe. I have to say, <laughs> like, so, like, which is funny because we heard some wild stuff in the last two episodes about Memphis, but yeah. some of this stuff, I don't, I don't even buy it. <laughs> so yeah. I'll be interested to get your take on some of it. Yeah, some of it just feels like old lore and just, come on, that didn't really happen. <laughs> right, right. Um, so AWA. Uh, it was started by Olympian, 1948 Olympian Vern Gagne. The company was sort of sports-based. Uh, Vern liked to play it straight, they said, as opposed to the flashy, flamboyant characters that we saw in the Northeast. But, um, John, did you have any exposure to AWA? No, I just, you know, I know of, I know that the Minnesota territory, if you will, is a lot of big names came out of there. I know it's one of the ones that, as they get into, Vince really did dirty when uh, he took over and went national and took a lot of talent from. But I, I never, yeah, I certainly never watched it. And yeah. I, even, quite frankly, with one exception that we'll get into, I'm sure later in the show, I don't know that I've really seen all that much footage from it ever. Mm. You know, like, okay. yeah, we see little clips here and there of a lot of territory stuff because, you know, you, you're telling the history of wrestling. The WWE is still telling the history of wrestling. And you get old clips every now and then, but not a lot from the AWA that comes to my mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the territory would go north to Winnipeg, south to Chicago, uh, and west to California. I also noticed the Denver was in there, too. So yeah, Denver was a big wanna... center, yeah. I don't know if you want to call that south or west, but it's a little of both. Yeah. But I I seem to recall when I was reading some of the Jericho autobiographies that he would reference NWA as making it up there and stuff like that. And that would make sense to me, especially with, um, you know, Don Callis and Kenny Omega both being from that area as well. And the Heenan Bockwinkle stuff being sort of the formula that they used for their presentation over the last couple of years so makes sense to me that that it would have been something that jericho would have also seen up in winnipeg jim bronzel kind of starts things off by saying he's 
kind of happy to be alive because most of his contemporaries are not with us anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of that, and uh, especially from that era, and you know, like from from that era and just a little bit forward, you know, we've thankfully not had too many recently. But we had a ten year period where guys were dropping like flies in their forties and stuff, and yeah. it just was—it was got to be heartbreaking, heartbreaking for us as fans. Imagine the guys who lived and you know went up and down the roads with them. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Most of the ones that we've had lately are, you know, Antonio Noki just passed away, um, but he he was in his seventies, which you know he had a good life. I'm wearing my. Uh... Luna Vachon shirt. I didn't have anything AWA specific, but since we talked, they talked a lot about Mad Dog Vachon. I thought I would at least wear uh, the Luna shirt. What was the story that stuck out most to you? Um, uh, The one that made me smile is one that, uh, and again, it was it was kind of quick in their sit down, and likewise, it was very quick because there's not a lot of details to it to be had, but. as things go along, I keep forgetting that I've written some things and recorded some things with you three months ago, four months ago. And I'm like, oh, that that Bobby Heenan story is in my Bobby Heenan episode of the, you know, the, the gunshot. And, and again, it's just in mine, it's just two sentences. Someone fired a gun towards ringside from, you know, a few rows back. And they were, someone was trying to murder Bobby. He, he was such a heat magnet. Someone brought a gun to a Chicago show and had the thought in mind of murdering a professional wrestling manager live in the middle of a show. They talked about how much heat he had in the territory. That that was that was the, the one thing regarding Bobby Heenan is this, this guy was hated. And that incident that you're talking about a woman was shot in the neck a guy was shot in the shoulder because the the bullets ricocheted off of the i guess the the ring apron or whatever sure and they never caught the guy that was the part that was the part that i didn't find in my uh you know research earlier that you know like it, it just kind of like everywhere you saw it it was just like hey a guy fired I think three shots, five people were hurt, none, none of which were Bobby Heenan, uh, thank goodness. But, you know, again, five people were hurt. Uh, but yeah, and then he just walks out of the building. It's bizarre. How does that happen, right? Like, <laughs> he was the guy holding the gun. Yeah. He needed help in the, <laughs> the detective work there. I mean, come on. Um, so there were a couple of stories about the airplane that we'll get into at some point, but the, the big story, I think that um, I kind of, I knew the story going in because it's one of legend, yeah. but to hear Ken Patera tell his McDonald's story is ridiculous. And, and to see everyone at the table, not be bashful about not buying it. <laughs> yeah. And the poor guy, I mean, he was a bit emotional about the whole thing. You know, he like uh, he was 78 years old as he's telling the story and he's talking about, you know, so they they did a show. Uh, Masa Saito, he wrestled Mad Dog Vachon, hurt his leg. So they are in this remote town and the only thing open is like the Holiday Inn bar. So they go, they sit down, they have a bunch of drinks, but then they realize they haven't eaten. So they point they point Patera in the direction of McDonald's, which is down the hill and a couple blocks away. And since Saito's knee is hurt, he goes alone to go get the, the McDonald's. This is like midnight. 
He gets to McDonald's, and the thing that should tip you off first, John, is he even says it in the story. He walked through the drive-through and pounded on the window. And I thought that was going to be the issue that they just went, "Go away, you're not in a car." Because I've, <laughs> I've had that happen to me, you know, a, a football or baseball camp, and you know, twelve guys go and they they walk up to the drive-through just to be funny and pretend yeah. like they're in a car, and then you know, the people behind the counter go. Walk inside, stupid. You know, just, <laughs> yeah. not You're not endearing yourself to anybody when you do that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I thought that might be the punchline. But, you know, he tells the whole story about how he'll, he offered to give them $5 for the hamburgers that were going for 35 cents at the time, um, per hamburger, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the guy's like, no, no, the, 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 the stack of hamburgers that you see, we're using for a commercial, so I can't do it. And, and Ken, the way Ken tells the story is he's like, okay and he was about to walk away and as he's walking away some kid appears and says you know i hate that guy and ken's like yeah i kind of do too at the moment (laughs) (laughs) and then you know ken over ken's shoulder and through the window flies this boulder that ken says that the kid threw and he (laughs) ken's like why did you do that and apparently the the guy had uh fired him recently that's ken's story uh and it continues. They go back to the he go Ken goes back to the hotel. The cops show up. Saido doesn't speak any English, so Ken deals with the cops. They ask Ken if he if he was Ken Patera and if he threw this. Uh, yes, he's Ken Patera. Did you throw the rock through the the McDonald's uh, window? No, I didn't. And immediately she maces him, and then she maces Saido, and then they call for the. Apparently, the cops have called for backup. And they've all got billy clubs. And Patera and Saido decide, well, rather than get hit in the head over, you know, repeatedly by these billy clubs, we're just going to beat up the cops. So 16, 17 cops, whatever it is, they beat them all up. They stack them up until one of them pulls a gun. Yeah. And at that point, the story kind of concludes. Ken Patera goes to jail for two years, six years probation, says that he lost out on seven to $800,000 in, in, you know, booking and attorney fees and things like that. So the best part comes, and it's the moment that we're all thinking. When J- Jim Brunzel says, all due respect, Ken, we love you. I love you. But I'm pretty sure you're the guy who threw that boulder <laughs> through the window. <laughs> that, the funny, that's, that was the funniest part of it to me. Ken Patera, as he's telling the stories, it was basically a rock flew by his head. <laughs> yeah. When everybody else talks about it, it's a 30-pound boulder. Yes. That an eighteen-year-old kid is not shot putting, but perhaps the world's strongest man could. Who did shot put before he exactly. did strongman and weightlifting competition? I mean, Patera is a legit uh, bodybuilder strongman. You know, he he. If anybody's equipped to do that in this remote town, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there happened to be another guy big enough, strong enough. That was at the McDonald's at midnight. <laughs> that was the other interesting thing about the story. Ken Patera set it up, and he even busted uh, Greg Gagne's balls yes. a little bit. Like, oh, you know, uh, there were there were no accommodations for us. Your father probably set this up. You know, basically calling his father chintz yeah. or you know, cheap guy. Waukesha, Wisconsin, is a suburb of Milwaukee. <laughs> It's like the Rosemont Horizon and Chicago proper. <laughs> it's just on the outskirts. He made it sound like it was in the Canadian wilderness. Yes, he did say wilderness. Yeah, he, I'm quite sure if, if they had, you know, jumped in a car instead of he, you know, the story was he walked down the street from the hotel. 
and all that was available was a Holiday Inn. Well, in in, in those days, is a Holiday Inn, you know, the the Howard Johnson, the Holiday Inn, the Red Roof Inn, things like that. I think that a lot of wrestlers probably stayed in places like that. And if you hadn't gone to the bar for two hours to make sure you got in your six glasses of scotch and water and decided to eat first, maybe you wouldn't have run up against this closed McDonald's. (laughs) Again, yeah, he made it out to be that he was in, you know, the absolute nowheresville. He was right outside of Milwaukee. (laughs) And, and, you know, again, he's 78 years old telling this story. He did do time for this and he did time in the prime of his wrestling career. So he probably did miss out not only when you factor those two years, but any any momentum or heat that he had going during that time is completely gone by the time he comes back. So Absolutely. I do feel bad for him in that respect. And he is on the verge of tears because nobody will believe him. And he says, all the things I did. I was in the Olympics. I did these strongman competitions. And all anybody wants to talk to me about is this McDonald's thing. And, and I'm thinking to myself, if I was interviewing you, you damn right I'd be asking you about that McDonald's thing. Nobody, frankly... Sorry, Ken, but nobody gives a crap about the other stuff <laughs> when you have this on your rap sheet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's such a he's such a a unique figure in that, like, he didn't have a very long run in the WWF in my memory. You know, yeah. like I I know he was the second ever Intercontinental Champion, but he holds that that rare distinction of of the first twenty two Intercontinental Champions. There's only three that aren't in the Hall of Fame, and he's one of them. And his run was kind of unspectacular in my memory. But here he was. He was legitimately the world's strongest man for a while there. He was an Olympian. He was a strong man. Yeah, there was uh, clips of him last night throwing not, – not throwing the discus, not throwing a shot, but throwing the tractor tires. And yeah. this man was a physical specimen back in the day. And – you know, a pipe uh, around his neck, you know, yeah, squatting with uh, small vehicles back when the vehicles were still made out of steel, you know, just insane feats of strength. And, you know, that, you know, he lost two years in the prime of his career uh, behind bars. And, you know, just it's a, it's a, and he really, well, you, like you said, he really was getting choked up at the beginning of that story, talking about how this crappy story is is in every interview and for good reason, but yeah, you also can understand why it upsets him. Yeah, of course. Cause he, you know, he feels accomplished with the other stuff that he did. And he certainly is. Yes. He just, he did it at a time where he had face recognition, you know, some people would walk up to him with the bleach blonde hair. Aren't you Ken Patera? Well, yeah, you're a mountain of a man with bleach blonde hair. Yeah. Odds are, yeah, that is Ken Patera. But, you know, had he done that maybe 10 years later, his life would be completely different because there was just so much more attention paid. Yeah. You know, um, pivoting off of the McDonald's story, they all talked about all of the different people there, talked about how they got into the business. Um, And basically, they all started with AWA, uh, everybody that that we heard from. His story, I thought, was really interesting because... Here you have Vern Gagne, who is a 1948 Olympian. You've got Ken Patera, who is a specimen, but apparently is, is broke or whatever. So Ken, uh, so Vern actually sponsors Patera for the Olympics and the strongman and everything like that. 
And then at some point, Patera's like, you know, I'd, maybe I'd like to get into wrestling. And since you're already paying for me to live, <laughs> you know, I might as well make you some money. <laughs> so that's how that's how he got in. Um, Greg Gagne, obviously, is Vern's son. He drove the truck. He did the referee. Uh, everybody else, you know, Medusa tried to make it out like, oh, you had it easy. And he's like, well, you know, being the being the son of the promoter is never the easiest thing. You know, I had to do things that you didn't do, like drive the truck and referee and such like that. Uh, and wrestle Greg in the living room when he you know, he's moved all the or, or wrestle Vern in the living room. Yeah. Right, right. Jim Brunzel was somebody that Greg knew from college football. Dallas Page, interestingly enough, and I've heard this story from Dallas many times where he had a few matches early in his, you know, when he was about the right age. And then he got injured and he went to the bar scene. And by the time he got ready to come back, you know, he was 30 years old and he's like, I'm too old to start now. And so he sends in a tape to manage. So. But isn't that crazy to think that it, what, he was 31 years old and he thought he was over the hill then? Yeah. You know, yeah. like under the under the 2022 or 2021 Vince rules where, you know, 27 was the cutoff. All right. You get where he's coming from because maybe that's the thought of the old days promoters. But there was a long area in between there where 31 was not old at all. It, you know, generally speaking, I mean. Up until very recently, you're not even making it on WWE's main roster until you're that age. Yeah, you know? yeah. When I when I think of the fact that uh, certain guy, like well, of course DDP, we found out when he finally broke into WCW was uh, close to forty, if not in his forties. Yeah. Uh, I, when Batista broke on the main roster, he was what thirty nine, I think. Like you, you certainly right? can tell by looking at him, but I remember reading that reading that in an article or something like that when he was a fairly new face to me and going like, "Holy crap!" Yeah. So yeah, but to, to think DDP thought it was probably like he he had been a wrestler, okay, albeit not necessarily a good one. He had gotten injured, he had gone and done other things, and he had that itch to get back into the business and thought like, "I'll never break in as a wrestler." let me shift and try and become a manager. Yeah. You know, the other uh, story that they told that I had heard before, you know, Medusa was talking about how Vern Gagne, you know, he, he believed in people early and helped a lot of people start. And they talked about this barn that Vern had, and it would be, you know, there's no no heat or anything in it, but that's where he took people to train. Ken Patera yeah. went there and, and others, and Ken would talk about how, you know, there's it's this ring in the middle of the barn and there's pigeons overhead and chickens and there there's chicken shit all over the ring apron and stuff. Uh, and then they, they quickly pivot to tell the story about Ric Flair, Ric Flair training there and quitting. Yeah. You know, who couldn't handle it or whatever. And then Vern went to Ric Flair's house, smacked him across the face, and dragged him there. And it it just strikes me because when we talk about Memphis, there was a point in the Memphis episode. Uh, I'm sorry, was it the Memphis? Were they talking about the plane ride? Or the plane crash? Yeah, when, what about that in Memphis? When was that? Anyway, Ric anyway. Flair was in the plane crash that, you know, he if he was sitting in a different seat he would have been dead right john you wrote an episode for the daily wrestling news show certainly um, did no uh 
October 1st, I think, 1975. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what episode number it is. I can look it up in a second. But uh, but yeah, so Ric Flair had that moment. Here's another moment where we almost didn't have Ric Flair, but apparently, you know, the the fact that Vern it was insistent that he would not quit. Yeah. You know? So yeah, but yeah, and the, what they were doing in that crappy barn with the you know with the 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 chicken poop all over the ring and the bales of hay and you know it, it, Minnesota winters it was unheated they were working out six hours a day six days a week uh, you know starting every day with a mile run a mile run uh, you, the ring was dirty the ropes were too loose and every because everything was cold everything hurt just that little bit more. I, it's amazing that that's what passed for you know. Just to think today, you think of the performance center. I you know I've never walked through it, but you know we've seen through backstage stuff and you know little bits of uh, documentary footage of what it looks like. To think of the way we train our athletes now, as opposed yeah. to the way they did back then, it is so night and day. It is amazing. In my notes, I actually wrote that he had his. Uh little perform that it was a performance center <laughs> yeah, exactly uh it, the october 4th episode of the daily wrestling news show episode number 47 what 1975 event nearly changed wrestling forever that was the rick flair plane crash and it was uh crockett so it wouldn't have been involved in the memphis i'm not sure why i had that brain malfunction there um so yeah i mean those are the kind of stories but then they 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 had a couple of stories about the airplane. Vern needed a way to move wrestlers around quickly because the territory was so big. So he had this little tiny plane, this 12-passenger plane, but wrestler weight meant they could only put about eight people on there. And they would drive, fly around the territory, but the wrestlers uh, called this plane Suicide One because it was small, and it had to fly low and things like that. So Mad Dog Vachon, a bunch of stories about him. The one about Adrian Adonis, Greg Gagne didn't even want to say it on the show. And I would have a hard time repeating it here as well. Yeah, it's surprising that it didn't get cut because it didn't, you know, it didn't really have a lot of value. <laughs> no, no. But the, the Mad Dog Vachon one is the I you know I was saying earlier there's there's things I didn't believe I don't know if I believe this story about Mad Dog Vachon um, throwing stuff out of the airplane I, I mean it, it might be just a to me it seems like it's a tall tale yeah I don't I don't I don't buy parts of everything that led up to it either mm. because I mean the way they broke it down this was a man who would drink a pint of whiskey before going out and performing. Along with two uppers. And on that night, apparently, he drank his pint of whiskey. Brunzel gave him two, basically, amphetamine pills. Gave him speed. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what, what today would be essentially Adderall. Uh, drank a ton of beers and a lot. Like, cleaned out the locker room of beers when nobody was looking. Had a metric ton of wine at dinner with uh, his girlfriend or his fiance's family or something like that. Another pint of whiskey afterwards. They tried to calm him down when they put him on suicide one by giving him a quaalude. He also smoked a joint. He smoked a joint <laughs> to try and calm down as well. Like his body would be so up and down. There's no way, you know, his either brain wouldn't have exploded or his heart wouldn't have stopped. Right. And, and then on, then after that, 
feel free to take over with the what what they say actually happened on the plane. Essentially, they the plane moves in such a way that they think they've actually been struck by another plane. And the pilot tells them that the door is actually open and please go shut the door. And it, they turn around and they see Mad Dog Vashon hanging out the door. Um, and then they're flying somewhere over Iowa, I guess. And he starts throwing empty bottles and wrestling gear and boots and everything out the window. So I don't, I just don't know if I totally <laughs> buy it, but they have to do an emergency landing. The police are on the scene. They give every, they give the AWA two options. They say, we can arrest Mad Dog or you can take him and you can deal with him. And Mad Dog's like, you better take me and you better deal with me. <laughs> so they, they, they hog tie him up and put him in the back of the plane and they arrive at their destination and they decide to just leave him there and let the pilot deal with <laughs> so, yeah, That's the end of the story. Yeah, because he spends the whole plane ride back telling everyone who, you know, sitting around him, I'm going to kill you when I get out of this, yeah. when I get yeah. out of these restraints. Yeah. Interesting fella. Yeah, yeah. Remind me never to get in a, a plane with anybody named Vashon, I guess. I would have to concur. <laughs> uh, nor will I at any point be uh, not carpooling. Uh, what's the word when you have a chain of cars going somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Convoy, and, uh, if you will. Convoy, yeah, with Sherry Martell. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was going to be so much a, a so much better story. I know attached to Sherry Milkshake Martell. Yeah, well, especially since the way they set up the segment. You know, they talked about oh, say Medusa gets the call from AWA to come in, and she's like, "Oh my god, of course." course this is the opportunity that i've needed and then they find she finds out that she's going to be working with sherry martell and the way that the segment kind of opened they said oh my god it was the nightmare i think is what they called her well then the story all the, the only story that they told was that uh they were they were driving the the baby the heel car was in the front the baby face car was behind them the baby faces were all smoking weed and so the and the windows were up, so Medusa's in there, and she's getting a contact high or whatever. And then Sherry Martell loves Dairy Queen, so they stop at Dairy Queen. She buys a bunch of uh, milkshakes, and then she, as they're driving down the road, she comes out the sunroof and throws the milkshakes at the babyface car, which then they can't see. But apparently they could see enough to know that, uh, that it was Doug Summers who had his butt sticking out the window as they drove by, although also he was driving. He was driving the other car. Okay. Another tall tale, right? Like how is yeah. that possible? <laughs> but then, out the window or feet on the pedals. I don't see how you do both. Well, they did pass them, so I can see maybe the car was slowing down. But uh, but then the car spun out of control, went off the road, and they the baby faces beat them to the town, I guess. <laughs> That's the end of the story. But Medusa did say kind of the heartfelt moment of this whole Medusa segment was that with the $800 that she got in her first paycheck, she bought markers for the graves of her, I believe her aunt and her grandmother. Yes. That was kind of the, the heartfelt moment. So the AWA, you know, in general, you know, there, there's some other stories on there. This one I think is the weakest of the three so far. Although it was kind of fun to hear the Ken Patera version of the McDonald's story. So sure. 
uh, I would, if you haven't watched any of them yet, I would recommend going and back and watching one of the other two episodes uh, as a priority, the Memphis ones and the, the Andy Kaufman one. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to, yeah. But at this point, watch them in order because the first two were very, very good. This one was certainly, you're not going to be bored sitting through it, but it was, it, it pales in comparison to the first two. Yeah. Oh, I guess the the end of the end of AWA should really be discussed uh, before we get out of here. You know, Vince McMahon is never the baby face in these documentaries. Oh is he? my God! Every new story I hear about him, he's a bigger scumbag than I heard, <laughs> and I already give him credit for being a, I mean, tippy top of the list first ballot Hall of Fame scumbag. <laughs> this story was just another one where I went like, seriously. Vince Senior gets the uh, gets a deal with HBO, and all the territories are calling Vince Senior, saying, "What are you doing? Uh, you're you know you're overexposing. You're going to run into our territories. It's going to be a problem." And he's like, "Hey, no problem. Just send me send me some tapes with your uh, with your top matches. We'll put them on HBO. It's Vince Junior's idea." So they do that, and then that's just Vince Junior's way of scouting scouting all the talent and exposing it all over the country, uh, which was which was good for his plans. And then Junior goes by the AWA, says, I'd like to buy you out. And Vern says, I got partners I got to talk it over with. So thank you for the number. I'll come back with another one. Vince says, yeah, give me a number. So Vern comes back with a number. And Vince is all irritated about it and says, I don't negotiate. And he doesn't negotiate. He just runs you over. Hulk Hogan is scheduled for an AWA Christmas show. And he doesn't show up. And it sounds like Hogan was trying to give them the heads up and tried to give notice, but Vern kind of thought it was a, a rib from from the Florida Territory. Um, yeah. So yeah, sent a like a, a handwritten note saying, "Yeah, I'm not coming back." Hulk. Sorry. <laughs> so Hogan doesn't show up, and they get in contact with him. He's like, "You know, Vince Jr. is he's paying me more money to stay home, so I got to deal with him." And and Greg Gagne tells the story that in that day, there weren't any contracts. And uh, they were just handshakes. But nobody ever broke their word on those for, a, you know, for a long, long time. He said, you know, I know nobody did it from 1950 till Hulk Hogan did it. And so Hogan was the guy who, who broke that. So, like, you know, if I'm looking at silver lining for that story, though, at least they all got contracts now. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Medusa asked Greg, "So when did when did Vern realize, you know, they, this was happening?" And Greg said he never did, and he wouldn't quit. Yeah. So the the legacy of the AWA was that for the long time it was the biggest territory. It was started by Vern. Mert, Medusa would say that Vern was great at getting people started, and he really believed in them. Ken Patera would agree with that as well. So, uh. Like I said, interesting, interesting episode. Not as good as the Memphis one. I think that is about the perfect uh, encapsulation of it. Yeah. Next week, championship wrestling from Florida. So we have, I know Jerry Briscoe's on there. I know Kevin Sullivan's on there. I believe uh, Skinner is in there as well, but I don't know. Yeah, I, there were two other faces that I'm looking at him and going, I really should know who that is. But like you say, yeah, Briscoe and Sullivan were the only ones that, Immediately, I was like, "Oh, obviously, yeah. I know who that is." So, we will uh, we'll be right back here next week to cover those ones. 
Uh, John, anything else about the AWA that you want to chat about before we get out of here? Uh, just that it, 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 the one thing that stuck out to me was that apparently that's where the weasel suit came from. Uh, yes. So that, that was something I did not realize. And uh, that, that gave me a good chuckle. Yes. And they actually did, uh, when they were talking about that gunshot story, they actually had some uh, audio of Bobby Heenan telling the story as well. So, uh, so yeah, they did focus on Bobby for, for a few minutes in the episode. So good stuff. Absolutely. All right, the Daily Wrestling News Show is on every day, Monday through Friday. It's a five to ten minute quick episode that you can watch, or I shouldn't say watch, you can listen to on all of the various podcast players. You can go to dailywrestlingnewsshow.com slash links to find um, links to all those areas where you can listen to it. Uh, John and I alternate on who hosts each morning's show. And uh, what was today, John? Uh, this morning was Vince Mc, uh, the, the birth of a new catchphrase, I believe. Okay, there you go. Birth and then uh, and uh, it was a Vince McMahon spoken catchphrase as well. So yes, yes. All right. That said, uh, John, we'll see you next week. Till then. <laughs>